and that should give us great, great joy. So this morning we are going to be in Jonah, the book of Jonah. If you're not familiar where where that is, uh, if you can get to the middle of the Bible, to the book of Psalms, head to the right, and you're going to get to the book of Daniel and go to Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and then you're going to get to Jonah. Uh, If you have an electronic device, you're cheating, so um, it is the way it is. But uh, I just want to touch on what uh, John had mentioned up here about the group going down to EAA. And if you do see John, talk to him about that. And Matt was involved in that and the, the youth that went down there. It's just a wonderful thing to have them do that, certainly to serve. We, we love it that we get out and have a chance to serve. But I mentioned this in the first hour. It's always a great opportunity when we can get outside the context of northeast Wisconsin in the sense that a lot of things that happen here, we come to church every week and we see what goes on here and what goes on in our homes. And the Christian life really just seems to revolve around here, right? And we know that the Christian life is so much more than just here. We have brothers and sisters around the world that are doing many different things. And so they, they had a little bit of an exposure to that this weekend or this last week. And so that that's a wonderful thing. So if you see any of the youth, uh, certainly ask them questions about it and encourage them in the fact that they went down there to actually serve. So just a wonderful thing. So again, um, we're going to be in the book of Jonah. We're going to read uh, in chapter 4. That's where we're going to be, chapter 4. I'm going to pay most attention to verses 1 to 4. I'll read the entire chapter, but then really coming back to just verses 1 through 4. And really before we read uh, that section of Scripture, chapter 4, I want to set the context of what we're getting into. What is chapter 4 all about or what is chapter 4 a response to? So I want to do that by giving a summary of what's happened in the first three chapters of the book of Jonah. In chapter 1, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and cry out against the people because of their wickedness. And the people of Nineveh were wicked. There are all kinds of uh, stories or information about the wickedness of the city of, of Nineveh. One such story really gives kind of an overview or a pretty good example of how wicked they were. They would take their enemy and they would skin them alive, and then they would take their skin and hang it on the wall outside the city to show their prominence over the rest of the world, so to speak, and to show how powerful they were. That's a pretty good indication of how wicked they were. So that's the message. Jonah's been asked by God to go deliver this message against these wicked people. But instead of doing that, Jonah decides to run from God's will, run from God's presence. And he does that by setting sail for Tarshish, which is actually in the opposite direction of Nineveh. During his journey, God causes a great storm uh, to keep the ship from going any further. And as the storm progresses, the crew is trying to figure out why this storm is happening. And they finally find out or understand the reason for the storm is Jonah. Jonah tells them to throw him overboard and that the storm will calm down. Uh, the sailors uh, aren't at that point willing to do that. They actually have compassion on Jonah. They try to row back to shore but the storm keeps them from doing that. And finally, in an attempt to save their own lives, they do throw Jonah overboard as suggested. 
And we see chapter 1 ending with God appointing a great fish to swallow Jonah. In chapter 2, we see Jonah. He is in the stomach of the great fish. He's been in there for three days and three nights. And finally, he calls out in prayer and repentance to God over what has happened. And God commands the great fish to vomit Jonah up. And Jonah ends up on dry ground. One little thing I would point out, I didn't mention this in the first uh, service, but I I should have. Uh, One of the things you don't want to run by there in that transition from the end of chapter 1 to chapter 2 is Jonah has been uh, in the, the belly of the great fish, the stomach of the fish, for three days and three nights, and then he cries out. I mean, that's how stubborn Jonah was. It takes him three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish before he'll actually cry out to the Lord. So we see that happening. He uh, he is now uh, vomited up out of the, the uh, fish's stomach, and he's on dry ground. And then we enter into chapter 3. And here Jonah is given a second opportunity to do what God has asked him to do. God tells him to go to Nineveh and to deliver his message. That message is simply this, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. A very simple message to deliver, and he's asked to go back and do that. He's given this second chance, and Jonah obeys this time. He does what God asks him to do. He goes to to Nineveh, and he does deliver the message. The result of him delivering that message is that the people of Nineveh repent and turn to God. And I would encourage you to go through chapter 3 to look for some of those indications that they did actually repent and they did actually turn to God. They are there. Um, Time doesn't permit us to unfold all of those, so I would encourage you to go back and do that. But there are indicators there that they did truly repent and turn to God. So that really is the context that we have that brings us to chapter 4. The people of Nineveh have repented, and then we really see this response from Jonah and what happens in all of chapter 4. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and then as I mentioned, I'm going to spend my time primarily in verses 1 through 4. Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have a good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when the the dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. 
Then God said to Jonah, Do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have a good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow up, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? So that's how the story unfolds or ends with regard to Jonah. And there are three components that I want to talk about in those first four verses. But before I do that, I want to take a little time and and really kind of do a topical presentation on an issue that I think really jumps off the page as we read through those verses. And that issue is the issue of anger. We see anger mentioned in verse 1. It's mentioned again in verse 4, and it's mentioned again in verse 9. I really could say it's also mentioned in verse 3, but it's mentioned, um, or excuse me, in verse 2, but it's mentioned as a, uh, a kind of a counter, uh, counter uh, measure in, in regard to the character of God that he's slow to anger. So it's set up in opposition to how Jonah is responding. So, Uh, I know you have your hand out there, and and so it's going to take us a little bit of time to actually get to those points. So you're going to have to hang in there a little bit while we make our way there. So the first thing I want to talk about really is what we see there in verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. The idea of him being angry there or the mention of anger has to do with, with him being hot him being burning with anger. It's not just some simple displeasure with what is going on. He is furious over what has happened. And so we think about just that idea, he's burning with anger. We would maybe want to pause at that point and say, what is anger? What is anger? Well, to answer that question, I'll defer to David Paulison, who says this, Anger is a moral act of the whole person, not a substance or something inside you. It's a great definition. It's a great thing for us to think about because modern psychology would have us think that anger is something inside of us, something that we need to get out of us in a healthy way so that we will feel better about ourselves. Uh, one of the popular things, or it was popular, popular a few years back, was this idea that if you're angry with somebody, a healthy way to get that out is to take a baseball bat and find a pillow and go beat the pillow silly or however the phrase is, and that will then make you feel better about yourself. It will, it's a way to get rid of your anger. The problem with that is the Bible talks about dealing with anger in just the opposite way. We are supposed to control our emotions. We're not supposed to be driven by our emotions. We're not supposed to uh, express our anger in our, our, our unrighteous anger, I would say, in that kind of a way. So again, the Bible would tell us completely differently. The Bible would tell us that we are to deal with sinful anger through repentance and faith. And I would argue that certainly what we're going to unfold here is that Jonah's anger is based on his selfishness. 
So when our anger is based on selfishness, then it becomes a moral act of the whole person. A good way to determine whether or not our anger is based on selfishness is to take a look at what we see in verse number 4. The Lord said, Do you have a good reason to be angry? I, I, this is one of my favorite questions in the whole Bible. <laughs> and I would, I would encourage you to put a mark there, highlight that, underline that, somehow remember that, because it's a very important question. It's a very important question, not only for those that we engage or that we talk with, but it's also a very important question for ourselves with regard to determining whether or not we are responding or behaving in anger. So as we think about that question, again, I would encourage you to think about using it on others. To, it could be your children, could be your grandchildren, could be your spouse, could be people that you interact with. Uh, and probably most importantly, it's a question that you can use to ask yourself. The next time you get angry, you need to ask yourself this question. Do I have a good reason to be angry? Do I have a good reason to be angry? And I'm going to change the question a little bit because I think it gives it a little bit more of a direct effect. It's not really changing the Scripture. It's actually what the Scripture is talking about. I would change the question this way. Do I have a godly reason to be angry? It's the same thing. Many times we have a distorted view of what's good and we can try to justify what might be good or what might not be good. But when we ask the question, do I have a godly reason, that gives a whole different twist to it. And I would encourage you to think about that. It's very important that we consider that question. And that question, actually the, the first question, do you have a good reason to be angry, might sound somewhat familiar. It is very uh, very similar to what we see in Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel. In fact, I would encourage you to turn there right now, and we'll take a look at Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 7. Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain threw an, uh, brought an offering to the Lord, of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry. That very angry there is the same thing we're talking about in Jonah. He is hot. It's not that he's a little displeased that God didn't accept his offering. He is hot. He's livid over the fact that God did not accept his offering. So it says uh, there in verse um, 5, But for Cain and his offering he had no no regard, so Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? Verse 7, If you do well, Will not your countenance be lifted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door, 
and its desire is for you, but you must master it. What he asked Cain there is really the same question he asked Jonah. He's asking that question because he's trying to get at the heart of the matter. He's trying to get at the heart of the matter with Cain, getting Cain to understand that he has no reason to be angry. He asked that question of Jonah because he wants Jonah to understand that he has no reason to be angry. That's why we ask that question of ourselves to get us to understand that we have no reason to be angry. We have no godly reason to be angry. Angry or, or being angry is ugly. It's very ugly. If you've had to deal with somebody who has a real struggle with anger, I'm probably preaching to the choir. But anger is ugly. We certainly see that as the story in Genesis 4 unfolds. Cain is so angry, he kills his brother. And I think it's pretty easy to understand what's going on there. God does not accept his offering. He gets livid over that. And if I had, if I would take some uh, uh, theological speculation, and I can do that because I grew up with a number of brothers, the... I think what happens there is, and again, this is just my speculation, but I think what happens there is after this interchange between God and Cain, Cain and Abel are together, and Cain says to Abel, can you believe that he wouldn't accept my offering? I can't believe it. I, yeah, it wasn't the best that, that there was to, to give, but I gave him an offering. And Abel responds and says, it's your own fault. You knew what you were supposed to do, and you didn't do it. And with Cain being livid already, it's not much of a step to go from there to killing his brother. That's exactly the danger of anger and unresolved anger. And that is something we want to understand as we go through these passages, how ugly anger really is. That said, there are behaviors that are associated with anger. In his book, The Heart of Anger, by Lou Priola, he presents some behaviors that are associated with anger. I would recommend that book to all of you, certainly to parents. I've mentioned it before. That book is very beneficial in that it helps us to understand whether or not we have a Christ-centered home or a child-centered home. And uh, we, we need to understand that as parents. We need to understand that as grandparents, making sure that We don't have a child-centered home. When we have a child-centered home, we are provoking them to wrath. We're provoking them to anger. Anyway, in his book, here are the behaviors he says are associated with anger. Outbursts of anger, temper tantrums. And don't be fooled, those are not only things that happen in kids. I've seen a number of adults have temper tantrums, and it's not pretty. But it is an indication of anger. So outbursts of anger, argumentation, fighting, animosity, cruelty, strife or antagonism, acts of vengeance, malice, bitterness, discouragement, and the discouragement, you want to think of that in in the way of apathy or indifference. You see that really in the story of Jonah. Uh, Jonah gets to the point where he's apathetic about what's going on. There's an indifference 
about what is going on, certainly an indication of his anger. We could go to a number of places in Scripture that talk about these kinds of behaviors where we see these behaviors play out. We already talked about Genesis chapter 4 and the story of Cain. You see these behaviors in Genesis 37 and following with regard to Joseph and his older brothers and how they relate to Joseph. We see it in 1 Samuel 20 where Saul tries to kill his son and also is wanting to kill David. We also see it in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son and how the older son responds when the prodigal son comes home. Those are just a few places in Scripture we could go to see those behaviors play out. And certainly there are a number of Scriptures that would that would uh, back up uh, the idea of anger being associated with those behaviors. One of those places is Proverbs 29, 22. An angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. So we would say, okay, we can identify anger. We can see some of the behaviors associated with anger. Why is it so important that we see those things? Well, it's important to identify anger because anger, unresolved anger, is a component to the path to rebellion, outright rebellion. And here's the way I would see the path to rebellion. It would start with a wounded spirit, Proverbs 18:14, then move to anger, Proverbs 22 verses 24 to 25, bitterness, Hebrews 12:15, stubbornness, I would uh, refer you to Exodus in the story with Pharaoh and his resistance to God's leading in the sense that God is giving him an opportunity to see that God is the one in charge, not Pharaoh. And throughout these plagues that happen, Pharaoh has ample opportunity to submit to God, but with every opportunity, he digs his feet in more and more. He is stubborn. And then the final place we find ourselves is in rebellion. And again, we see that in Genesis 4 with the story of Cain. And when we get to the point of being in rebellion or having someone that is in rebellion, we are primarily dealing with a fool. In Lou Priola's book, there's a wonderful section in there where he talks about 25 characteristics of a fool from Proverbs. And it's it's very striking when you go through that list. It's very challenging when you go through that list. But it's something I would certainly encourage people to take a look at. Again, especially for parents and grandparents and understanding how when we allow people to respond in anger, we allow the kids and grandkids to respond in anger, we are actually promoting their pathway to rebellion. And we certainly don't want to do that. So there are some behaviors associated with anger and really the concern then of how anger can be associated with a path to rebellion. But there's probably somebody out there that is at this point already thought about this and, and kind of saying, wait a minute, what about righteous anger? Anger is not always bad. There is righteous anger, isn't there? That is true. 
That is true. There is righteous anger. So for us, we would have to ask the question, how do I tell the difference? What's the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous or sinful anger? Well, we could talk about, I think, a lot of different components that make that distinction. But I think you can boil it all down to this one question. Are you angry because God has been offended? Or are you angry because you have been offended? That's the difference. If I am angry because God has been offended, that's righteous anger. We see that with Jesus overturning the tables in the temple. God is being offended by what's going on there, and he gets angry. For us, I've dealt with a a number of angry individuals, and it's pretty much 99.9% of the time their anger is a result of them being offended. That is unrighteous anger. And that unrighteous anger stems from their selfishness, them wanting their way, them not getting what they want. So we see this anger as tied to selfishness. There's just no two ways about it. That is what we have been, uh, one of the things we've kind of been talking about for the last, I don't know how many months around here with the Bible study that had been going on, um, the, the video series we were going through in the passage that was instrumental in that study, James 4, 1 to 3. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. I mean, the last part's talking about selfishness. It's about what you want, not about what is good or godly. And the the term that's in there, to wage war, Lou Priola says this, the term wage war is a word that is has at its root the idea of being encamped. It's a military term. When our desires, as good as they may be, become so strong that they camp out in our hearts, those desires, as good as they may be, become sinful. They become sinful, idolatrous desires. Not because they are sinful desires in themselves, but because they are desired inordinately. Jonah's desire for the people of Nineveh to be wiped out was actually a godly desire because there had been a condemnation against them for their wickedness. But the reality is, if if they were going to be wiped out, that was going to be God's doing, not his. It was God's will that was going to wipe them out, not his will. He desired their destruction so much that it superseded his desire for God's will. That's where we have to be careful. That's where we have to think about the solution to sinful anger. The solution to sinful anger is taking the focus off of what we want, off of our desires, and focusing them on what God wants, letting Him fulfill our desires. Psalm 37.4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That's about His will, not about our will. We need to delight ourselves in the Lord. 
in His will and trusting in Him that all will be well no matter how it looks to us. Well, having said all of that about anger and the destructiveness of anger and giving a little bit of an understanding of what that is, what it looks like and how we need to be concerned about it, that brings us to our thesis for this morning in your notes. When we desire our will more than we desire God's will, life becomes very hard. Life becomes very hard. With that, let's look at Jonah's reaction in the first four verses to help us evaluate whose will we are truly desiring. And we'll start back in verse 1, actually just 1a. But it greatly displeased Jonah. It greatly displeased Jonah. What, what's the it that's there? What, what was he greatly displeased about? He was greatly displeased that the people of Nineveh repented and were not destroyed. Jonah's dissatisfaction, you see there that I have point one, dissatisfaction with God's will is seen in selfishness. Again, Jonah selfishly wanted the people of Nineveh destroyed. And that's exactly what we see his selfishness play out there in that first part of verse 1. He was greatly displeased because they were not destroyed. And it's hard to imagine that. Maybe the largest evangelistic effort of all time. Most commentators would say that over 600,000 people repented and and believed there. Over 600,000 people were saved from eternal destruction. And Jonah is not happy. Why is he not happy? Because he despises the Ninevites. He thinks the Ninevites are not worthy to be saved. They are not worthy to be given a shot. I like to put things in perspective when we talk about, again, how commentators talk about over 600,000 people being saved and what that, what that really would be like. For us, I think it's pretty easy. Just think about the city of Milwaukee. The entire city of Milwaukee would repent and believe. And we would not be happy about that. That's unimaginable. But that's exactly what's going on with Jonah. That is how displeased he is. And we think about what's Jonah's responsibility. Jonah's responsibility is not to bring about the destruction in that, in that sense that he's going to do it. He's a prophet of God. He's simply to proclaim the message that God has given him, and then you kind of step back and let God do the rest. That's really kind of how we do evangelism, right? We proclaim the gospel, and it's up to God to do the rest. We don't, we don't make anybody believe. Jonah doesn't like what has happened. And it's amazing because Jonah has been shown God's grace. Jonah was graciously and compassionately delivered from the belly of the great fish, but now he doesn't want that same grace and compassion shown to the people of Nineveh. And that's how selfish he is. God's grace, God's goodness is good for me, but it's not for them. It's very sad. Very sad commentary on the selfishness of Jonah. 
And I don't think selfishness gets much worse than that, or at least what we see in Scripture. There are other places we see that, where somebody is worried more about themselves than anyone else. We see that in the book of Luke. Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son and the older brother. At the end of that story, the older brother knows that his younger brother has come home, but he wants nothing to do with the younger brother because selfishly, he thinks he's been wronged. He thinks he's deserving of something that he's never gotten and that his younger brother is not worthy of being given the grace of God, so to speak, and allowed to come back in the family. I think back on just people I've interacted with and, you know, just kind of ask the question, do you know anybody, anyone who's as selfish as Jonah? I've met a few. Actually, I've met a number. (laughs) I've met a number of people that really are as selfish as Jonah. They think that there is a group of people that have done things so horrific that they are never worthy of receiving God's grace and compassion. And when you try to talk to them about their own life and the things they've done or the things they've been through and how is it that they think they are justified in receiving God's grace and compassion, it's interesting to hear the conversation. And they will stick to their guns. They will stick to their guns thinking that somehow they are deserving of God's grace, but this other group of people are not. And as bad as that is, as bad as we see it, We see the selfishness in Jonah's life. It actually gets worse. It gets worse, and we see that in point number two. Dissatisfaction with God's will is seen in unrighteous anger. And that comes from the second half of verse 1. So it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And then in verse 4, really kind of ties this together with the Lord asking him, do you have a good reason to be angry? First, I would draw your attention to that little phrase, he became angry. It doesn't say that God made him angry, which is important because it tells us that no one can make you angry. No one can make you angry. It goes back to what I said before that Responding in anger is an action of the will. It's a a response of the whole person. It's our response. We decide to respond in anger. I use this illustration all the time to, to show this, to show the truth of that statement. If you would, imagine a mother and her child. The child could be five, six, seven years old. And the child is sitting at the table eating their food. And the child says, I would like to get down and go play. And the mom says, not until you finish the rest of the food on your plate. And the child says, I don't want to finish the food on my plate. And the mom says, you're going to finish the food on your plate. And the interchange goes back and forth, both of them getting more extreme in their responses. And pretty soon the mother is screaming at the child. You are going to finish the food on your plate. She's angry. And all of a sudden, the phone rings. How does mom answer the phone? She doesn't answer the phone angry. 
she answers the phone very calmly. That shows us that you can control your anger. That you are the one that chooses to respond in anger or not. It is a moral decision of the whole person when we respond in anger. And certainly we know that from Matthew 15, verses 18 to 20, where it makes it crystal clear that sins proceed from out from the heart. It's not something that's done to us. It's something that's already inside of us. Again, getting angry or becoming angry is a moral act of the whole person. And when our anger is based on selfishness, then it is a sinful moral act of the whole person. Again, how do we know that Jonah's anger is sinful? Well, that's where we move on or we see that in verse 2. In verse 2 we see, He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. He's just basically telling God, see, I told you so. I knew this was going to happen if I had to come here. If I had to come here and deliver this message, I knew you were going to do this. He is putting all of this squarely at the feet of God. He is blaming God for where he's at. He's blaming God for his anger. It's your fault. But you hear this all the time. Somebody gets really mad and you talk to them about their anger. Well, yeah, yeah, I got mad, but the reason I got mad was because so-and-so did this. Again, nobody makes you angry. You decided to respond in that way. And certainly here, Jonah is laying his anger squarely at the feet of God. In essence, he's telling God, I knew this is what you were going to do, and that's why I didn't want to come here. You knew that and made me come anyway, and now look what's happened. It's all your fault. It is amazing in his prayer how he tries to condemn God for what is going on, yet in the midst of his anger, he accurately describes God's character. And we can do the same thing. We can do the same thing. Uh, We can't think that somehow we're outside of of doing something like this, (laughs) outside of of, uh, getting in prayer time and responding with the goodness of God and then yet complaining about the way things are, complaining that the will of God is not going right in our life. It's not what it should be in our life. And... uh, that reality came home all too well this last week, this last Wednesday. I was driving home, and don't get me wrong, my, my heart goes out to this guy. I, I don't want to be in his situation. Nobody in this room wants to be in this situation. Some of you may have already been in this situation. And again, my heart goes out to anybody that has been through this or or uh, will go through this. But the guy on the radio, Christian radio program, was talking about uh, the death of his daughter. This all had come up uh, quite unexpectedly, um, and uh, some some things behind the scenes that were very difficult for his family to actually get to his daughter's bedside. 
Uh, she was in a coma, but they were they knew she was not going to last much longer. And he barely got there uh, before she passed away. But during the course of the interview with this gentleman, the uh, uh, the person, the, the host of the show, asked him about his, whether or not he was angry with God. And he just opened up about how he was very angry with God, almost like what we see in the story of Jonah. And how he was blaming God for what had happened. He was bitter against God for what had happened. And again, my heart goes out to this man, but this is where we as Christians have to be very careful. His anger against God is based on the assumption that somehow God's will is wrong. It was God's will that his daughter died. He allowed that to happen. Why did he allow that to happen? I have no idea. But he did allow that to happen. And the idea that we are angry with God over that happening is based on the assumption that he has done something wrong. May that never come out of our lips. May that never come out of our heart. The idea that God has done something wrong is blasphemous. And it's blasphemous certainly because we're charging God with something that is inconceivable, Him doing something wrong, but it also shows that we are reversing the roles. Things are upside down. God is no longer on the throne. We are. We're the ones telling Him that He has done something wrong. It needs to be the other way around. He is the one telling us that we have done something wrong. Again, we could go back to that Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, to talk about that because that's what's going on there with the older son and the father. He is insinuating that the father has done something wrong by allowing the younger brother to come back into the family. Those things we must be extremely careful about as we think about our relationship with God and who God is and God's will for our life. When we are not satisfied with God's will, we can find ourselves in that angry situation or being in anger. So Jonah has gone from selfishness to anger, and then we see in point three he goes on to bitterness. Dissatisfaction with God's will is seen in bitterness, and we see that in verses 2 and 3. And again, that prayer that I already mentioned, how he moves through that in verse 2, but then in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Why do I say that this is bitterness? I say it's bitterness because bitterness in the biblical sense is resentful cynicism resentful cynicism. It's unresolved anger. And it really comes through, again, from what is insinuated here. Jonah telling God, I told you this was going to happen, and now I have to suffer for it. And that should not be the case. Unresolved anger leads to resentful cynicism. And that is something we have to be very careful about because that progression can happen fairly rapidly. Jonah is making this statement that if he has to endure this, he would just as soon be dead. 
I mean, that's a rather extreme position. That's how we would certainly see that. It's, a, it's an extreme request and it's a, an extreme position. But that is, again, where unresolved anger will lead, even in the midst of reciting the wonders of God's character. It can easily move in that direction. And what Jonah says here sounds a lot like what we see in Job chapter 7, verses 11 and 15. Job says this, Therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Verse 15, So that my soul would choose suffocation, death, rather than my pains. Anger can easily lead to bitterness. And the one thing I didn't mention in the first service, probably should mention, would be that bitterness can lead to despair, which I think you could make an argument for in the text as well. You get to despair, and it's pretty hard to move somebody back out of that position. Anyway, Jonah thinks he is satisfied in saying what he does, and then God graciously steps in and asks the question he asks in verse 4, do you have a good reason to be angry? The answer is obvious. No, he doesn't have a good reason to be angry. And that's why he doesn't ask he, he doesn't answer the question. His response to the question is what we see in verse five that he leaves. Verse five says, Therefore or excuse me, verse five, then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. And it goes on from there. He leaves and goes outside the city. That's his response to God's question. And that's where we will pick it up next week. And really what we're going to take a look at next week is uh, in, in the big scheme of things, in verses 1 through 4, we see this focus on Jonah, on his selfishness. It's all about what's going on with him. And in the rest of the chapter, we see God trying to turn his perspective from himself to heaven. And that's a great pattern for all of us as we think about interacting with people that are struggling with sin. That's one of the things we want to do with people that are struggling in sin is turn their focus. Turn their focus from themselves to God and God's perspective on what is going on. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this wonderful story of Jonah, a story that we can use to evaluate our own lives, to help us to see whether or not we are pursuing your will or our own will. Help us to see that when we're selfish, angry, and bitter, that we are definitely not pursuing your will. May we be sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit so that our desires would be solely your will. I ask those things in Christ's precious name. Amen.